Hi, my name is Steve Taylor. Welcome to the ShareEd podcast, created by Robinhood Multi-Academy Trust. Hi everyone, we've got an absolutely brilliant podcast today. We're interviewing Diana Asagi. She is a complete life force off the wall in terms of her enthusiasm about education and life, and she's an absolute outside of the box thinker. She's a former head teacher. She's the founder of Courageous Leadership, and she's an inspiration to many, and she's internationally renowned. We think you're gonna get loads from this, and I tell you what, she is super honest. So without further ado, over to Diana. Everyone, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you're listening to this, Diana Osagi, I am stoked to be here. Who am I, what do I do? I am an ex-secondary head teacher. I am a leadership coach. I coach head teachers who are in those challenging circumstances. Those people who choose to serve at the chalk face, I'm their coach in the background. I run a company called Courageous Leadership. I have an online academy for women in leadership. I write books. I do inspections. Now and again, I sleep. Other than that, I'm not that busy, really. <laughs> nice, quiet life. Yeah, very quiet. Very, very, very subtle lifestyle. And it's for that exact introduction why we've asked you onto the podcast, because I heard you speak as part of um, an MBA program. And what I loved about you is just your dead honest and down to earth way of approaching things, which I, which really resonated with me. So it's a pleasure to have you here. And what you've just described there all about you is what we want to look into today, because this Cohort two is all around looking at leadership for people. But we know that sometimes when you go into leadership, it can feel as though you're being funneled into your your career options almost in a way can feel like they become less because once you step up that career ladder, people feel like there's no going back. And yet what we've got from you is an example of someone who has diversified hugely. So, I mean, can you start by telling us about what led you into education in the first place, Diana? Oh, wow. I was a scientist. I don't know if you've watched CSI before. It's that um, pathology sort of forensic science program. So that's where I was going, forensic science. I was doing a degree in biomedical science at Wolverhampton University. And it was coming up to the final year. And I was working in a laboratory. So when you go to hospital and you have a bit removed, it would come down to the lab for lab work. I was the person doing the lab work. So that is what I thought my life was going to be, a scientist in a laboratory, working in pathology. I loved it, but it did not pay at all. In fact, a graduate science wage was £9,000. Now, I am a little bit older now, but even, even in those days, that was hardly anything. So I knew I couldn't make a living from this. I couldn't live a lifestyle that was worth living on £9,000 a year. So literally, as a good scientist does, I was reading the New Scientist magazine. And in the back of that was a teacher training program. And it was called SKIT, School-Centred Initial Teacher Training. I don't know if they still have SKIT anymore. But you, you, you train at school all day, every day. You don't actually go to university. And I applied. It took a year to get on. And literally, that's what it was. It was just a chance, if you like, a chance glance in a journal, at an advert for teacher training, and I was there. And I went into education, and literally, I did not look back. I 
did science teaching, of course, two years. Then I became second in the careers department. That was my first promotion. Right. And from there, head of year. And then after head of year, my career did take off. So I missed what we would now call assistant head. And I I went straight to deputy headship from being a head of year. So I became a very, I was a very young deputy head of a big secondary school in North London. Say again? What age were you uh, becoming a deputy? I was 27, 28. Oh yeah, young. So that was my first senior position was deputy headship of the secondary school. So I was deputy head because key stage three or pastoral really. And I did that for 10 years. I did five years key stage three, five years key stage four. And I became a head teacher in 2010. Wow. So tell us a little bit about the, when you became a deputy at 27, Mm -hmm. because the idea is that people listening to this podcast are going to be those who either are, well, just interested, hopefully, but also people who are aspiring to leadership or maybe just taking some first um, tentative steps as well. And I know that people get quite hung up about um, age and stage. So, you know, some people it feels like a race, other people it takes a little mm-hmm. bit longer. What was it like at, at 27 becoming a, um, a deputy? It was difficult. I won't do that. It was difficult, but not difficult for me. It was difficult for other people to accept yeah. that this 27 year old was now their deputy head teacher. I was appointed over 12 internal candidates. Wow. It was a 12-hour interview process, nine till nine. What's it? Yeah. I mean, that's how we did it in those days. There was no going home. Right? Oh, God. You stayed in the staff room until the last person had been interviewed. Then the head came in and pointed at the, people, at the person they were going to offer the job to. And that person went in and got the job. And if that person said, I don't want the job, they came back to the staff room and pointed at somebody else and got that person to come in. I mean, <laughs> this is archaic, but that's how it was. Right? So it was a rigorous process. I was grilled, grilled like chicken, you know, both sides, turned over and grilled. So I yeah. knew I got the post absolutely on merit. But yeah. now I am the deputy head and technically the boss, if you like, of people who've been teaching longer than I had been alive. And that they found <laughs> very difficult. So you've got people who've been teaching 30 years. I was 27. They yeah. couldn't, they just, they just couldn't accept this dichotomy, this, this dynamic. So I was fine with it, but they found it difficult. So th- that first year, my head teacher, he was very protective of me and very, and he was, he, he really did guide me because I was green in terms yeah. of leadership, but I understood young people and I was appointed to be um, deputy for key stage three and pastoral in the school. I understood young people. I understood how schools change the narrative of young people's lives. I yeah, lived yeah. that as a child and I, I lived that in my own educational experience, short as it was. I understood people, which is the first pillar of understanding leadership. I understood people, I understood relationships, and I knew how to make relationships work. I could make a relationship with a rock. I could make friends with anybody. And I understood from an early age how to hold people to account, how not to apologize for asking someone to do their job and to do it well, because I knew that if they did that, the young people's lives would be forever changed. So I had those pillars in place, but I was unrefined. 
So now people think, oh, she's not very subtle. She's, a, she's um, down to earth. I was fiery then. You know, okay. my emails were short and sweet as in no, end of sentence. <laughs> you know, because I didn't, I didn't see the benefit of typing more words when all I wanted to do was say no. So I just said no. Or I'd say yes, thank you. And that would be the end of the email. I had to learn the nuances of leadership, but people found it difficult. There's no doubt about it. But I didn't. I was, I knew that I was here because it wasn't an election. It wasn't a democracy. I wasn't voted as, as a candidate. I was appointed. Yeah. And yeah. so I was, I was um, confident in that, but I was willing and open to learning. And that's what saved me, I think, from getting absolutely roasted day after day was I was open to learning and I was okay, I was okay with making mistakes. I was, I was okay with saying, I'm sorry, my bad, messed that up. That is completely and utterly my fault. I will fix it. I didn't mind being a deputy who said that. Did you have, um, when you started the role, did you have much self-doubt um, or? Um, I didn't have self-doubt, but I knew I had gaps, great big gaps of knowledge because I hadn't been a leader very long before I was appointed as deputy. I've been ahead of year for only 18 months. Then that school shut down because it was terrible. So I hadn't, I knew that I hadn't experienced it. So I, I think one of the things my parents taught me was about reading. I read voraciously. Anything about leadership, any journal, any article, any book, education, business side, whatever it was. So I, I addressed my gaps quickly in terms of knowledge and, you know, the underlying things you need to know. And then I just worked really hard. So the skills came quickly. I didn't measure and pace myself. I went health for leather. So, and the school was in a bad place. We were in special measures. It was awful. You know, we were the second worst school in the country, blah, blah, blah. So there was a lot of work to do. So I didn't leave the site for five years. I didn't go out and see people. We didn't, we didn't leave. We stayed at school and sorted stuff. So I learned yeah. by just staying in the cauldron, you know, <laughs> and just, just staying right on site and just learning everything hands-on. So there wasn't self-doubt, but there were times where I thought, I genuinely don't know what you're talking about. I need to go and read about that. So people, I'd be at a meeting for the deputies in the borough and they'll be talking about them, but what are they on about? So I will just write down all these things. They think I'm making notes and looking quite intellectual. I'm just writing down, what does this word mean? What does that word mean? Then I'll go and look, look it up. Oh, that's what progress eight is. <laughs> Stuff like that or whatever it was that was going on. And that is, I, I just, I knew, I don't know what you're on about, but I'm going to smile and nod and then I'm going to go and find out what that means. So yeah. no doubt, but I knew I had gaps. Yeah. Okay. And what? And so then, ten years later, at the age of thirty-seven, mm. which um, is really young for a secondary head. I mean, it's more common to have a primary um, head teacher at a younger age, uh, I think, probably. But um, so you take on your headship at thirty-seven of the same school. Same school, yeah. yeah. So I take, I take on the head. <sighs> I. <sighs> it should have been easier than it was. I, yeah. I think for the first couple of years, because from my mind, relationships were in place. I told you I'm good at making relationships. Relationships were in place. 
I understood the school. I had high expectations. I knew what we had to do to move ourselves forward. But was again, it a good school by then, by the way, can I ask? Uh, by then, was it? Yes. By then, we were good. Yes, we were. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we were good by then. Um, but it was difficult because I didn't reckon on this thing happening. The one thing I didn't reckon on happening was when you change from deputy to head, the dynamic between yourself and your colleagues shifts and you've got to be ready for that. And I, I didn't even know that was going to happen, let alone get ready for it. Right. Suddenly, people who I would trust before, who I valued their judgment, now distance themselves from me because I was now the head. Yeah. People who I would call on for advice now had a different agenda towards me because I was now the head. Whether I was seen as a threat to them or seen in a position of power that I didn't realise, but I found that difficult. And that wrong-footed me a lot in my first year. You know, yeah. I, I found the change in relation, and it was a change from literally July the 29th, we broke up, whatever day that was, September the 1st, that summer holiday, everything changed. And I didn't, I didn't reckon on it at all. It caught me by total surprise. Do you think that was people not stepping up for you then, as in... You maybe is that because it sounds to me as though as a deputy you'd got a good support network, mm. and then yeah, I suppose you get to really see where people's allegiances and where the what their drivers are. Then when you That's step it. into yeah. so hard reinventing yourself, I always think for people going from a class teacher role to their first um, leadership role, you know. Uh, a year group lead or or a core subject lead, whatever it is, that's hard because ultimately you're holding your peers to account and that yes. can be real. These are people that they've been out socialising with and they're holding to account. But, I mean, compounded by 100 when you go from deputy to head then, I guess. Yes. So how was, did you get through that then? <laughs> <laughs> I look back now, and probably with rose-tinted glasses because it was a while ago now, but at the time, it's what I call now leadership grunt work. You know, you get those glory moments where things are yeah. fabulous and you're celebrated. But most of the time, leadership is what I call grunt work. It's just grunt, grunt, turn up every day and just get through it. You put your big yeah. coat on, you put your big knickers on and you just get through it. And that yeah. first year was a lot of leadership grunt work. There was little glory, you know, and the things they did sorting, we had a massive deficit. I had to sort that out. I had to do redundancies in that first year. 10% of the workforce I had to make redundant in the first year. That was hellish. You know, the staff turned from this wonderful staff body where I was a deputy into this them and us sort of scenario. Yeah. I had people of my senior team who were undermining me. I mean, it was, I put it all in the book, you know, because in the end I wrote a book because it was, it was hell. But it was so hell, it actually became funny. It couldn't get worse. You had to start laughing. So yeah. I got through it by literally just saying to myself, this time next year, this will not be like this. So you have to be, yeah. I kept being future focused whilst I was in the middle of difficulty and adversity. This time, in two months time, you won't even be here. I'm saying to myself, as I'm looking at particular people, in four yeah. months time, that year group would have left. In six months' time, that department will be, you know, I'm just future, I'm focusing on the future. Because if you, 
If you focus totally on the present, it can overwhelm you. Yeah. It can overwhelm you. But it, it was tough. It was a baptism of fire going, did I make mistakes? By the bucket load. By the bucket load. But I had to do the stuff that the previous head hadn't done. The redundancies, they were coming. They were huge. I mean, when you get to a stage where you've got to make 10% of your workforce redundant, you notice things have not been done over the years, you know? Yeah. yeah. You don't just suddenly get that kind of situation. That's, that's a build-up of not doing those things over the years. So, and I had to renege on promises that were made that shouldn't have been made. We will never have redundancies in this school. You can never say that as a head. So when I now was doing them, staff were saying, why are you going against a promise that we've been made? I said, because that is irresponsible. You can never say, we will never have redundancies in this school. Not, I will never allow that to happen to you. It, that, that's not how life is. That's just not how it is. So I'm doing that. I'm trying to raise expectations because we were a pastorally hearted school. Pastorally, we could get any child through education, almost any child. You know, if you came to our school, we loved you, we cared for you, we got you through. Academically, well, that was a bit hit and miss. Yeah. You know, the expectations academically were just nowhere near high enough. But as deputy, you can't influence that the way you can as head. And that's why I knew I wanted to be a head teacher because I could then make things happen. So these young people would leave academically qualified and socially confident. We were getting a socially confident thing right, but academically, too many of them were leaving without being ready for the next stage. They were leaving us stuck and having to repeat or having to go into courses that were frankly below them. You know, so we were setting them up for a lower level than actually what was theirs. When you just said that, that was hard. Go on. You just said something that, that really. Um that I thought was an interesting point. And I, I was just wondering about tracking back actually, just for a couple of minutes, mm. um, because you talked about why you knew you wanted to be ahead because of that mm. ability to have greater influence. So people often ask this question of, um, of head teachers, of leaders like you and me, I think about how do you know when you're ready to go and become a head teacher ultimately? And I'm just mm. gonna ask you to reflect on when you were a deputy, you know, you were for 10 years, mm. at what point do you decide, I take it the incumbent left, but with, see, I always think that when you're a deputy, the minute you start internally questioning what the head teacher is doing and you start looking and thinking, I reckon I would approach that differently. The minute you have that internal dialogue going on, you need to back yourself to start making that happen, yeah? Yeah, I, and I love that. You need to start backing yourself. That internal dialogue won't, won't be in year one. If it's in year one, just hold your horses, right? If you just, you know, just <laughs> yeah. deputy head, and you could be ahead, just hold on a second, my love, <laughs> because you've got stuff to learn. But when that, that dialogue starts happening, where you, I started to think this is not good enough. It's not good enough. Right. Yeah, we, we, we are not doing good enough for these young people. If this, what we're doing here will not get these young people through a successful adulthood. We, we owe them more than this. And I, you're right, I started to question that. It's an internal thing. God, I don't say that out loud. You know, it's an internal thing. And I knew as deputy, I can't make this happen, but I want it to happen. Yeah. I want it to happen. I don't want to sit here and just watch this happen. I want to change this narrative. 
I did my MPQH back in 2007. Lovely course, but back then it had nothing to do with headship whatsoever. It was just a very, very enjoyable course. I now yeah. teach MPQH. It's very, very different now. It prepares you for headship. We just had 12 folders, which you went through on a Monday night. You know, it, it was, I really enjoyed it, but that didn't get my mind ready for headship. But they contacted me, the NC, what they were called, NCSL, back in the day, National College School Leadership. Yeah. And they contacted me two years later. They said to me, why are you not ahead? Literally a phone call. And I told them because I don't want to, I don't want to, you know. And they invited me to come on what was called MPQH Plus, which was a weekend away. There's about 15 of us and three other head teachers. And we literally sat at their feet for the weekend and were able to ask them any question we liked, personal or professional, just have private dialogue about the realities of headship. So the, the one I spoke to, he was head at Drayton Manor School, which is in um, West London. I think his name's Prit Pal Singh a very wise head teacher. And I literally just sat at his feet and just talked to him. And I asked him questions about the stress, the this, the that, and the other. And he told me the truth. At the end of that weekend, I said, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. All the myths, all the stories, all the, the supposed stuff that might happen, I can handle that. I want to do this. And that's when I began to think. And it was a, a, a year later that I started applying for headships and moving myself forward. So that internal dialogue, you need to listen to yourself, become self-aware. And you, your drivers, they don't change, but they evolve. They become more important. I always liked young people. Of course I did. I want the best for them. Of course I did. But that's when I was a science teacher. Later yeah, on yeah. my deputy headship, it became more than a want. It became an absolute imperative that young people in my school left socially confident and academically qualified. That wasn't now just um, words in my mouth. That was an absolute driver. And if it wasn't going to happen at this school, then I've got to go and get my headship and make it happen. Yeah. Thank you. No, I think that was really good to, um, to get that insight. So fast forwarding back onto the headship then. So you've got that absolute year of turmoil mm. that, you're, that you're going through. At your lowest points in... How did you how did you deal with that? Uh, um, um, how did it manifest itself in some of your behaviours? Oh gosh! At first, and I, I, was, I was just on a keynote speech the other day. I actually lost part of my humanity. Now that sounds really profound, but it just yeah. means this. For example, I could walk past you, Steve, in the morning. You know, generally you say good morning, how are you? Da, 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 da. I could walk past you and not even register that you're there. Right. I register there's something in the space, so I wouldn't walk into you, yeah. but I wouldn't register another human being is in, my, is in my proximity. I was so overwhelmed with what I've got to do this, this day, tomorrow, what I've done yesterday. My mind had no capacity to register other people, let alone to inquire after their health, let alone to inquire after what's going on with them. So I actually lost... The part of Diana that makes me Diana, the, the loving relationship building person I am, and I became the leadership version. I was super efficient. You couldn't out-efficient, you couldn't out-efficient me, as they would say. I was dynamic. You couldn't out-efficient me. I was dynamic. I was everywhere all the time. I was on it, on it, on it. 
So I became like a, a robotic version of myself, the leadership yeah. version, the humanity version, the humane part of me. I left that bit at home. I came did to you, Did you, did that gradually dawn on you that was happening? Yeah. Did you mourn that person almost, you know, at times when yeah. you think, what happened? Yeah, I lost myself. It didn't dawn on me. And that's, just, I'm, I'm grateful for the craziness of some of the staff at that first year, because actually I would have just carried on like that. In that first year, doing those redundancies, you've got to have lots and lots of staff meetings and consultation, all that kind of stuff. And during one of them, a maths teacher stood up and said, you don't even say hello anymore. You know, you, you don't, you're not approachable. And all, I, I looked at her like, what? I nearly, I nearly said, who are you talking to? You know, South London come out. But what do you mean? How, you know, I nearly said, how dare you? She goes, you don't, you don't even say hello. I've not spoken to you in weeks. And all this. And I, I had to take it. I just took it. And I, you know, meeting ended. I went home. I thought, what does she mean I don't say hello? So I went back to school and I asked my deputy head, do I not say hello? He went, really? What? And you don't tell me. He went, what, don't you know? We thought you were just like that. No, I'm not just like that. So literally, that was a, an epiphany moment, but it was, it was painful. It hurts to be told that you're like that. So I went and found that um, math teacher, and maths was a trick. He had to go up these flights of stairs, so I rarely went up there because, frankly, it was too far. And I went up there, and I said, you know what? I'm, I'm, I've just come to apologise to you. She was shocked because I don't say hello, let alone I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll stop saying that <laughs> back in deputy head days. Yeah. And I said, I'm sorry for making you feel that way. I'm sorry for what I, for my actions causing those feelings in you. You shouldn't come to work thinking that I don't care for you because I deeply do. She yeah. starts crying. I start crying. It's a bit of a mess, you know. And that was the beginning of me finding myself again. It was about month yeah. four or five of the headship. But then as the things went on and it became difficult, and you get all these things that staff sometimes do, you know, they, the unions rise up, um, anonymous letters going back and forth to the MP and to the DFS, all kinds of madness. And sometimes I'd come home at night and I'd just cry my eyes out, cry my eyes out because yeah. it was just difficult. And I had no response apart from tears. Yeah. And what I didn't do, Steve, when I, and anyone listening to this now, what I didn't do was have a coach. I, I didn't believe in coaching in those days. It's ironic now that I've got a coaching company, right? But yeah. I thought coaching was the first stage of capability procedures. If you were rubbish I at your job, know. oh yeah. yeah. If you were rubbish at your job, we gave you a bit of coaching to sort you out. You know, it was like, yeah. I thought coaching was like medicine. There was something wrong with you, therefore you take medicine. If you're good at your job, you don't need coaching. That is genuinely what I thought. So I didn't even begin to engage with that until halfway through my first year where I couldn't cope anymore. And I literally went online and just typed in, I need a coach and just whatever came up, you know, and I, I, I rang them all until one of them answered the phone and that was Sir William Atkins he answered the phone. He was a phenomenal head teacher. Literally, he answered the phone in his office. And I said, right, you're going to be my coach. I'm going to come down to your school. And he goes, all right, then, you know, who's this weirdo? But it was that that saved me because I was drowning. And I didn't even know it. You know, so that thing about leadership is a lonely thing. It is if you do it that way. I'd recommend don't do it that way. Don't, don't work on your own. Don't, don't isolate yourself. 
don't think in a in a tiny little thought bubble called Diana. Widen yourself and, and seek out elders. Seek out elders in the profession and sit at their feet and get guidance. You know, yeah. and if I had done that from day one, I wouldn't have gone through half the mess that I went through. But I didn't yeah. do that yeah. until about six, seven months in. Right. What about in the evenings and at weekends? And That first often- year... I mean, I was never one, I, and even now, I, I'm not one for doing, you know, 12, 15-hour days. I just don't. I just don't. I don't think there's any need to, frankly. Yeah. So I'd get home by seven. You know, I've, I've left work at six. I'm home by seven. But because I didn't feel good, and as a woman, as a leader, we do a lot with feelings, you know? I didn't feel good at work. Yeah. And that yeah. spilled over into not feeling good at home. So I began yeah. to overeat. Not massively, but I couldn't be bothered to cook, so I just I speed dialed Chinese food to come. Yeah. Once a week, once a month, but I was doing that four nights a week. Yeah. So overeating in that respect, do you know what I mean? I yeah. began to not exercise because who can be bothered to go to the gym <laughs> at half past eight in the evening? Not me. You know, yeah. I'd binge watch Judge Judy. Just anything just to break that cycle of, you know, how I feel. So eating and Judge Judy became what I did for about a year and a half. (laughs) And, you know, in the book, I talk about when I first discovered my first varicose vein, because I just, I I let myself go, proper. (laughs) And I just started wearing elasticated trousers so I could stuff my belly in it. Yeah, I mean, I think with the, I suppose what I was sort of angling at there, and you've alluded to it as well, is, you know, often when people go into leadership, uh, I think they worry about the um, the work volume. And the work volume and the flow changes because, of course, when you get to leading an organization, you're in control of your workflow. So if your workflow doesn't work for you, you have to make it work. Make you have to work, be yeah. powered. But the one thing that increases is it's not physical work. It'll be, you know, you're sat at home and mentally something comes into your head about what you need to improve in the organization or three o'clock in the morning, you might wake up and you've got that nagging thought. It's actually letting parking those thoughts for a period of time that you get respite from it, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, as I said, I I don't do, you know, at my desk at six in the morning and don't leave till 10 at night. I I just don't work that way. When I'm at work, I'm at work. I don't do Facebook and Instagram or whatever. I don't book my holidays and book the washing machine, man. I am focused at work. And I find that way I get a lot more done in a Diana hour because of the way I approach my hour than in a different and somebody else. So I don't allow distraction when I'm working. So, oh, can I just tell you this? Is it absolutely central that I know what you're going to tell me right now? No, I'll come back. Okay, come back. You know, so when I'm working, I'm working, right? And I don't just quickly check WhatsApp and all that kind of stuff. So I get a lot done during the work day. But what I did do, and I did it early on, actually, on a Sunday, two hours, Sunday afternoon, I'd call them my CAD file time. CAD file is this boring TV program with Derek Jacobi. It's a monk, that's it. I mean, it's vaguely interesting, but it ain't going to set your world on fire. But you can have it in the background, not watch for 15 minutes and come back. And the plot's not moved on too much. You'll catch up what's going on. I sit in my conservatory with Cadfile on, Pringles and a drink, 
and I'd think about school. Right. And that's what I could, I, I, so I parked those thoughts, those 3 a.m. thoughts on a pad by my bed because those became my Sunday afternoon thinking time. Yeah, so I needed time to deal with them on Sunday afternoon. That's how, that's how I got around that constant whirring in your head as a head teacher that happens in the night. A talented guy I know um, often referred to him as boomerang thoughts. You know, particularly at sort of two o'clock in the morning, you ask yourself the question, you get an uh, unsatisfactory answer from your mind. It comes back to you. And then you know what it's like at two in the morning. You ask yourself the same question worded slightly differently, provide yeah. the same answer just on a feedback loop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's really good. I mean, I've never watched Cadfile. I, I mean, I think in about five years' time, I might have hair like him, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Unless I cut it short, but uh, that's a good idea to um, to do that sort of that that sort of thinking. Um, yeah, you know, because that's the one thing about it all. I think with education is that um, it's vocational, and like you were saying, you know, it becomes more than words. It becomes it becomes your core driver. It does, yeah. It then can become, and I think this is a slightly, um, I think this is the dark side of education a little bit. In terms of, you care so much, it can become you. Separating yourself out from the profession becomes really difficult. If things don't work out in work, and sometimes things don't work out in work for people, that's life. That's life, yeah. Sometimes that then makes people feel as if they're an inherent failure in life. And so separating out the personal from the professional in education is probably one of the hardest careers to do because ultimately... How can you say that you don't care about a kids' lives if you're in education, which then yes. links you inextricably to your personal and professional um, capacity, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's um, so. Yeah, I think trying to trying to separate those out is um, is important. When you were in um, a head teacher, then, so how long did you stay as head of that school for? I did headship for six years, and yeah. then so by now I've been in the school sixteen years. So now, again, and by now I was um, lead inspector for, you know, inspecting schools and I was coaching, I was running my own coaching programs for um, leaders in schools and um, I was coaching other people. So now I was very busy and running the school. We were 11 to 16 school. So by year six, I now was going to start a new cycle, if you like. You know, so you've done your taking year sevens through the way to year 11. And now I'm starting a new cycle. And I began to notice quite early in that year that I'm doing things by rote. The yeah. innovation, the, the enthusiasm was there, but it wasn't it wasn't as sparky. And I know what I'm like. You know, I'm a ball of fire when I'm ready. And I, 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 I began to think, Diana, you know this, you know this. And when you start thinking like that, you're getting stale. You're getting yeah. stale. And I knew that was a dangerous place. I don't want the school to have a stale head teacher and I don't want to be stale. I, you know, that's just not me. So I began to think, what do you want to do with yourself? What's next? Yeah. Um, one day I was on a, in a conference with some other inspectors and one of them, I was talking to her, hi Madeline, how are you? She goes, oh, I'm fine. You know, I've resigned. And I went, oh, what happened? Thinking that you only can resign if something goes wrong. No, yeah. no, I'm sort of my own company. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I looked and I went, you're leading the life that I think about. I went home. I said to my husband, I'm going to resign. 
It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I've just ordered a new car. I was on love. <laughs> I said, well, can I order a new car? <laughs> because yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to move on. I'm going to do my own thing. Then I'm going to think, what does that look like? What, so you, you think, what can you do, Diana? And once, I mean, I've got, we're teachers. What do we do? We get out a bit of paper and we start doing a mind map, don't we? <laughs> right? Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> yeah, can't help it. <laughs> so I've got out a big bit of um, a flip chart paper. What can Diana do? And I started writing and writing, just putting down words and phrases. Don't limit yourself down. Just what can you do? What can you do? I filled the page with all these phrases of what I can do. What do you want to do? And I went, all of that. And I can't do that if I'm a head teacher in one school. I want to do all of this. I want all the potential in me to be absolutely spent and realised. When I go to my grave, only skin and bones in that grave. I don't want my potential buried with me in the grave. I want to be absolutely empty by the time I'm done. Yeah. And I knew that can't happen if I'm a head teacher in one school. And yeah. that's, that's where I began to think of courageous leadership because, hello, to leave the salary, is, you've got a bit of courage because it's London heads, we get paid well. So you're yeah. walking out on a very nice salary, thank you very much. I might not get one client, who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this might yeah. go utterly pear-shaped. And I thought, if it goes pear-shaped, it goes pear-shaped. You come back to headship. You're not rubbish at it. You're good. It's not going yeah. anywhere. Just go to a different school. But, yeah. you know, you've got, like you said earlier, Steve, you've got to back yourself in life. Yeah. You've got to back yourself. And I've always had this thing. What's the point in a small vision? What's the point in that? Go big or go on. That's always been my way. You know, so I say to the kids, I want you to be scholars. They look at me like, what? We're from North London. Yes. I want you to swim in academia. Is that down the Cali? No, it's not a pool. Academia is this. It's, you know, it's school. It's education. I want you to be really good at it. All right, miss. You know, I'm telling them about a future that is big. Tell my staff that. They're like, have you seen the kids we've got? I'm like, yeah, I have. Do you, know what do you mean yeah. kids like this to be scholars? Yeah, kids like this. And I'm putting my hands up doing those air quotes. Go yeah. big or go home. You know, so, that, so that's how long, how long did it take you from um, you start mind mapping about setting up your own company? Mm. So that was beginning of year six, so September, September, oh gosh, September 2015. Yeah. yeah, September 2015 started. So that was the start of my sixth year of headship. Started mind yeah. mapping, thinking, building up networks, really going to town, like relationship building stuff. Started thinking, okay, Diana, we're going to need something to pay the mortgage, otherwise it's going to go very pear-shaped. So what's going to be your stable sort of, you know, map, map out your week. You know, two days working stable in this thing, three days doing this. I want to do some writing, a day of writing. I've all these grand plans, right? And then... Yeah. To be honest, I then sold a house. So financially, I was all right for about seven months. You know, yeah. so, and I said to myself, there is, you, you've got no excuse. There's no excuse. And you, you, it'll be a shame, an absolute travesty if you sat here 
I'm going to take this opportunity right now. Because this, this will not come around again. This perfect way, this perfect storm is not going to come again. You better get up and go for it, Diane. And I did. But goodness me, Steve, September the 1st comes round. I'm supposed to be back in school. That's what I've done for the last time many years. Yeah. September the 1st, even when I was, I was a child in school, you go to school in September. That's what you do. September the 1st, 2016, I've got nothing to do. My husband gets up, he goes to school. He's, he's, he's an assistant head. I wake up, I'm like, whoa, no, no, no. So I book an holiday and I go on holiday, <laughs> I go on holiday by myself for a week. <laughs> Leave my nice. husband's dinner and a, and, a, and a note. I've gone to Istanbul. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> but literally then I'm like, I've got no money coming in. You better get off your backside and go get a contract. You know, you just have to do it now. You've got to swim. You're in the water. There's no armbands. Start swimming. What can you do? I've got my flip chart paper. You can do all these things. Get on with it. Was it scary? Of course it was. You always feel fear. That's never going to change. But you have to limit what fear does to you, what you allow it to do to you what you allow it to do to your mind, your thoughts, your speech, your actions. Feeling the fear is part of humanity. So as long as I feel fear, I'm still human. But I've learned to limit what I allow fear to do to me. I've learned to limit its power over me. And so I do things, I'm scared, but I'm still doing it. I'm still moving forward. And I learned that throughout my headship, but I articulated that when I left my headship. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And how long did it take before your company, um, before you you felt confident in it, um, being able to sustain you in some form? Um, like two years? Two years. Was two it? years. I think I was very clear. You've got to have something that brings in the bread and butter. Some, And I was very fortunate. I got um, a contract with um, a trust to be head of standards for that trust, which was um, two, two or three days a month. But because I was yeah. charging now daily rate, that was bringing in 1500 a, a month, you know, every month standard sort of thing. So yeah. then anything else on top of that, you know, you go for it. But so you, you bring in the basic sort of thing by doing something. You know, it, now, even now, you can't, I don't think it's really possible to make a living out of just coaching. Yeah. If that makes sense. You know, just yeah. because... I coach maybe 10, 15 heads a year. If you coach too many, it begins to dilute what you're doing. 10, 10 a year. You know, and if, no matter what you charge them, you, you're not going to make a great living out of that. I'm not, a, I'm not coaching PricewaterhouseCooper. You know, we've got school budgets to do. We've got to be realistic here. Yeah. You know? So there's still that moral sense in me that, you know, I'm not going to drain your entire budget sort of thing. But um, I don't want to just coach. I teach you know, we met on the MBA, you know, I teach, I teach, I know I, I teach on a master's, I teach MPQH, I do lots of leadership programs, I have my own ones, I, you know, I teach online, I do lots of things because I can, Yeah. I can explore all of me, you know, and um, I'm not afraid to do that, I'm not afraid to explore, some of it's okay, some of it's fantastic, some of it's not very good, that's all right, I'm not looking for perfection here, do you miss headship at all then, or, or is that? Oh, yes. You do? Yes. Yeah. I miss the relationships you make as a head. I miss the teams. 
I grieved for my team for the yeah. first year, for the first two years of working on my own. I didn't reckon on that happening, Steve. I grieved for my senior team. I loved my senior team. And they were a big part of my professional and my personal life. I, I, I miss the influence that you can have to change the narrative of young people's lives directly as the head. Yeah. I do it now by proxy because I coach heads who are in schools like mine. I write books for heads and for leaders who are going through challenging stuff. You know, I teach MPQH. So I'm teaching people how to stand in adversity. So I'm doing it and them standing, young people will benefit. So it's like, you know, once one step removed. But I miss that direct action where you know you could permanently exclude that child right now and they deserve it. Let's just be honest. Yeah. But you find other way to get them through they get through, they get over the big mistake they made in year nine or whatever it was. They graduate in year 11. They look at you on results day and you both know that their life is forever changed because of your actions. Yeah, amazing. Their narrative, who they marry is forever changed, where they live, what they do. That cycle of living um, a below life has been broken in their life. And I don't forget when you've got parents who come to you and they, the amount of parents, I mean, it's a good thing, I think now, when I look back, who sob, sob into your lap yeah. because you saved their child from a life cycle of gangs and all that kind of stuff that we as in London heads often have to do and other heads around the country. And the mum or the dad, they collapse into your arms and they sob and they say, thank you for doing what I couldn't do. For saving my son from yeah. gang life because you made him come to maths on a Monday after school or whatever it was you made him do. And now he's off to university to do biochemistry when that was never on the cards. And I say it was always on the cards. You just needed someone to make sure those cards were dealt to him. And that is why education is such an amazing job to work it in. Is, it what is. A, it's a, a, it's, it's everything. I'm convinced. I know it. I know it. You know it. Yeah. Without us, society fails. Yeah. Everything, everyone comes through us first. Yeah, true. Then you go off and live your life. But you come to us first when you're three years old, two years old, early years. You come to us first. And we shape and form and make systems and procedures that set your life up. And then you go into the world. We are the cradle of society. Yeah. Absolutely. And we just don't get the recognition, nor the love, nor the political backing, frankly, that we deserve. Yeah. You know, so you've got to make it your own. I said, go big or go home, educators. Get into leadership Go forward and get into headship. You know, the elders will back you. I'll back you. Steve will back you. We're here. We're not going anywhere. We'll back you. We'll support you. But go forward and lead our schools and change lives. That's what I do now. And now I'm settled. I find it fulfilling. But at the beginning, I wanted to go back into school. 
and have a proper job. Well, listen, it's been amazing to talk to you. Can I ask you one thing? Because we've talked about the highs and lows and your passions come through. I mean, I love that go big or go home. I think it's brilliant. In your career, who's had the who's had the biggest influence on you? Now, often people have a whole range of people, but is there one person that sticks out who you would say they helped you in a way that maybe others haven't? It's going to sound strange because normally people look up, don't they? So it's this person that was above me. Yeah. Actually, the people, the persons, people who had the biggest influence on my career were my two deputy heads. Right. I mean, I've got their picture. She says, reaching up, showing you on the Zoom. There we are. There's Dan and there's Susan and there's me. We're at an ASCOL conference, believe it or not. (laughs) We had that picture taken. My two deputy heads who came on board, Sue came on board um, in the June at the end of my first year. Dan was already there as assistant head and I promoted the deputy head um, in the second year. Those two, or in the third year, sorry, those two people changed the school with me, changed the headship that I was doing, and that changed my life. They were experts experts at what they did which allowed me to be a great head teacher because expertise lay outside of me it allowed me to be well-rounded because Sue knew curriculum like I've never known anyone she understood how to make curriculum in a school Dan understood pastoral leadership and I was ahead of year but he knew his stuff between those two people, they allowed me to step into my greatness. Yeah. So, so I'm, 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 I talk to them all the time. I still send them their birthday gifts. You know, they are forever special to me. My two deputy heads are my, my mentors in a roundabout weird way. Yeah, because you're getting it. It's so important to have people who are going to give you direct feedback, isn't it? Uh, yes, they got, oh, they and they gave me that. <laughs> uh, have they gone into a headship, either of them? Yes, Sue, Sue is now the head. Great. And Dan is on his, uh, he's just starting a new deputy headship, actually. But I said to him, we'll do this for one more year, two more years tops, and you're going to go into headship. And I've had enough of this. He's still umming and ahhing. There's always an excuse, but I'll get him there. Good. Well, listen, Diana, thank you so much for your time, for your your honesty and and straight talk. And I'm sure you've inspired a load of people today. Most welcome. um, And you are living and breathing what we're looking for in education, which is... Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, we hope that you enjoyed listening to the podcast with Diana Asagi today. I think, honestly, it's so great to hear people speak with passion, energy and vibrancy about education. And Diana is all of those things and absolutely blunt and honest. So we hope that you've taken a lot from this. As ever... This is a Robin Hood Multi Academy Trust production. You can get in touch with us via Twitter at Robin Hood Trust. Until next time, catch you later.